Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. Americans face a three-year loss to their life expectancy at birth, the second steepest drop over the last two decades. This was the finding of a report published in August by the U.S. National Center for Health Statistics. This echoes a latest health indicator report by the OECD, the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, which found the drop in life expectancy in the United States to be particularly large compared to other developed countries. What exactly does this mean? How much was COVID-19 to blame? Why is American life expectancy fluctuating and how severe is the situation? I'm pleased to be joined from Beijing by Professor Hu Naijing of the School of Public Policy and Management at the University of Chinese Academy of Sciences and from Washington, D.C. by Dr. Eric Ding, epidemiologist and chief of the COVID task force at the World Health Network. Gentlemen, welcome to The Point. So, um, Eric, let me go to you first. According to the U.S. report, U.S. life expectancy at birth had been rising steadily, although, um, you know, the rise has been very, very slow, but it has been rising steadily at least since 2000. But since 2019, it had a sudden nosedive with the average life expectancy dropping from 78.8 to 77.3 in 2020. That's a drop of 1.5 years, and that was the steepest in the, the two decades. Now, the decline continued in 2020 to reach 76.1. That's another drop of 1.2 years. Help people understand uh, what exactly is life expectancy at birth and from a purely scientific point of view, what does the drop mean? Can we say the average Americans have to expect to live shorter? Well, life expectancy, obviously, how if of a child born today, how long they would expect to live in, into the future from all causes, whether it's childhood mortality or adult mortality. And to really turn the needle on life expectancy, it actually requires a huge, huge rise in mortality. But that is exactly what we saw during the pandemic. Um, the U.S., especially uh, in, from 2020 to 2021, a lot of minorities died at much higher rates, a huge disparity. But in from 2021 to 2022, a lot of, um, in addition, um, the last past year, a lot of white Americans died because of not getting vaccinated, refusing to vaccinate. So there's a whole slew of racism, uh, and as well as, of course, not getting vaccinated, and just the U.S. healthcare system being much more vulnerable um, than uh, many other countries, and that's why you don't see as sharp of a drop in other OECD countries in and. And you don't see that sharp of a drop in Europe either. Professor Hu, according to the same report, COVID-19 was the leading contributing factor to this decline, accounting for as much as 70% in 2020 and 50% in 2021. And the, we know that the total excess deaths from February 2020 to August this year are 1.2 million for the United States, and 90% of these were attributed to COVID-19. Can we say COVID-19 shortened U.S. life expectancy by three years? I mean, that's quite an astonishing number. I think it's still too early to make the final judgment because of lacking of data or detailed data. 
but uh, in my opinion, I think the life expectancy at birth is a statistical data. It's not simply as that that you ask the, the dead people what is his age, then you calculate his age. It's not work in that. It doesn't work in that way. It is a kind of calculation to divide people in different age groups, and then they calculate each age group's mortality rate. That is to say, if the, the very old age group has a higher mortality rate, then the life expectancy will decrease. So I think uh, comparing different age groups, we can see that elder population age group is also uh, vulnerable uh, people to COVID-19. So that is why some people may say that COVID-19 may contribute to this uh, uh, dropping of the, of the life expectancy in the United States of America, since the, the very old age group people are, in my opinion, are more vulnerable to COVID-19. So, some people may say that, but we can't say it without any scientific research or the detailed data analysis. So you say it may be because of COVID-19 that the life expectancy has dropped by about three years in the United States, but we need more scientific evidence. Is that what you're saying, Professor Hu? That's right, because we, we, we can only make some reasoning because okay. the elder age group people may okay. more but vulnerable in terms to the COVID-19. Right, but in terms of an indicator of how the society is healthy, how the population is healthy, how the uh, public uh, medical you know, healthcare system is functioning, how indicative is this life expectancy number? Because every country more or less calculate in a, using a similar way. Professor Hu. Uh, yes, uh, but there are so many factors. For example, it is more than 10 years ago that some researchers may say, uh, the life expectancy can be attributed to different healthcare systems. Because as we all know that comparing with U.S. healthcare systems to European systems, U.S. healthcare is more expensive. People have to buy insurance. That is to say, the public healthcare service may serve less in the United States of America. However, in the United Kingdom, they have the NHS system, which makes United Kingdom's people's life expectancy much higher than mm. the United States. So I think there are so many factors, and uh, I think COVID-19 may be one, okay. one of the most obvious factors in that. All right. The OECD health report published earlier this year showed similar trends and numbers, Eric. It says the drop in the United States uh, is particularly large in 2020 in terms of life expectancy, and it's the lowest among G7 countries. Why was the U.S. getting hit harder, and how much was the U.S.'s COVID response um, to blame? For this drop? Yes, yeah, so the US definitely got really hit hard. And I think it's a combination of the US healthcare system not being a universal healthcare system like European countries. Most European countries have a, a government funded system, and the, the poor are able to access healthcare uh, relatively inexpensively, while the United States, the system is very stacked against those who are poor. And so, um, there's a cost of medications and drugs similarly. And the U.S., I think, vaccine refusal uh, was much larger than some other countries where the vaccine uptake was much higher in many ways. And I also want to point out, it's not just direct causes from COVID, but it also includes, for example, when hospitals are full mm -hmm. from COVID patients, there's right. indirect uh, deaths from uh, heart attacks. Basically, you can't get an ambulance to treat your heart attack or stroke. And of course, there's long COVID. Long COVID is the long-term impact of COVID. Right. And we know that cardiovascular mortality increases in long COVID, okay. even if it's 
directly COVID in the short window of time during the infection. So I think it's a combination of uh, factors, vaccine hesitancy, but also just that U.S. Uh, has a very vulnerable healthcare system and a lot of people What about policy? Off. What about policy? Because obviously in the beginning, in the first year and the second year of uh, uh, pandemic outbreak in the United States, the policies were very much controversial. Yeah, I think in certain ways, uh, the American resistance to um, zero COVID approaches is much, much stiffer than other countries. Um, you know, Australia, New Zealand, um, were much more stiffer and also, you know, contact tracing, the U.S. did much less contact tracing. And of course, lockdowns, U.S. only did a brief lockdown. It's a very soft lockdown. Now, obviously, it's not sustainable for two years, but compared to other European countries, and that's the question, and other OECD countries, U.S. is much more resistant to a lot of these mitigations and did not practice as much of the contact tracing mm -hmm and airborne um, transmission precautions as right. many other countries. So right. it's a combination of reasons in which how we drop the ball. Professor Hu, the U.S. report also mentioned the second largest contributing factor of the change in life expectancy is the increase of uh, unintentional injuries, which was largely driven by drug overdose deaths in 2021. And it was the same case in 2020. How impactful has the worsening drug epidemic been, which uh, has weighed down life expectancy? Well, I think uh, I agree with Eric completely on this combination of factors. So. Uh, as you have mentioned, such as the drug abuse to induce the injuries, uh, in my opinion, I think there, that, that may be uh, linked with the political or social factors in different countries. Uh, I think in uh, in United States, I think there are the controversial debate between different political major political parties, between different groups about the drug and about the control and some kind of measures or policies. So I don't think there is a consensus in the United States society that the drug could be contained. But in okay. other countries, such as in China, there's no other opinion than to contain the drugs, contain the abuse of uh, drugs, etc. Et so I think uh, so many factors, such as political, social, economical, or cultural, I think a lot of factors can be attributed right. to uh, this kind of change there's, of life expectancy. Yeah. There's also definitely the other dimension, which uh, Eric mentioned just now. If you look at the differences by origin and race for the year 2020, life expectancy dropped across the board. But last year, when the situation was supposed or was a um, turning for the better, non-Hispanic white people still experienced a one-year drop in their life expectancy, whereas other groups seem to have bucked the trend, with the exception of uh, AIAN, which is uh, non-Hispanic American Indian and Alaska Native. And overall, black people and Native Americans have always been the more vulnerable groups with uh, their life expectancy considerably lower than the Hispanics, Asian and white people. Eric, your comments. Yeah, I think it's a combination of in the early pandemic, um, you know, a lot of minorities were forced to work in a lot of these more dangerous jobs. But then the vaccines rolled out and minority uh, uptake of vaccines is actually higher, became actually higher than whites. We know that white, non-Hispanic whites in America, vaccine resistance among a lot of conservatives was extremely stiff and therefore vaccine uptake was much lower. So once a lot of businesses reopened uh, in late 20, mid to late 2021, 
oftentimes it was the unvaccinated uh, non-Hispanic whites who got hit the hardest because their vaccine uptake was the slowest. I think that's the most obvious reason for the crisscross of how white mortality exceeded black mortality in the second year of the pandemic. And um, it's very unfortunate. And it's the political politicization of vaccines and masks. Also, you know, the, the hesitation to wear masks among a lot of conservatives uh, dropped a lot. And I think it's very unfortunate. Okay, we're going to leave it there. Hopefully things will get better slowly. Many thanks to Professor Hu Jing of the Chinese Academy of Sciences and Dr. Eric Ding from World Health Network. We are going to take a short break and when we come back, my conversation with three international students who recently visited Xinjiang. Why are they calling the trip inspiring? Stay tuned. We all enter this world with a universal greeting. <laughs> We then learn to speak. Though our languages, cultures, and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the world. General Railway Company Hear the difference. Join our global network to connect with the world. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. Xinjiang has been pushed to the forefront by Western media again. Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Wang Wenbing said on September the 1st that some Western forces seek to destabilize Xinjiang and use it to contain China. This unjust, pernicious political agenda will not have people's support and will only end in failure. What is the real Xinjiang that's missing under the Western spotlight? In July, 20 international students studying in China made a seven-day trip to the region to see the place for themselves. For most of them, it was their first visit to the region. What stood out to them about the region's unique mix of cultures and uh, heritages? What made them call this trip inspiring? How different is Xinjiang to them from what's been told? Earlier, I spoke with three of them. Mazumde Oscar from Bangladesh, Mackenzie Shakel Elviska Elisha from St. Vincent and Grenadines in the Caribbean, and Yunus Shibini from Algeria. The warmest welcome to all of you. First of all, let me go to Oscar. Oscar, tell us about the preparation for this trip. How did it come about? We started on 2nd July for Xinjiang and we were almost 20 students from 19 countries and we started from Hangzhou to Ulumuchi. So our first city was the provincial city of Xinjiang Ulumuchi. We were we 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 are there for two days. Uh, it's almost one night and one day. And we have been to the Xinjiang Museum, and they are called the local market Tapa Chia. Mm -hmm. Uh, so when we are in the museum, when we was in the museum, we have saw a lot of um, cultural, uh, cultural and ancient things of Xinjiang, like their cultural diversity, mm -hmm. how they come from past to present, and how actually Xinjiang, Xinjiang is a multinationality place. 
where where multinationality comes and mixed with the mixed culture yeah so basically it's a it's a it's a field trip for the summer to help you understand to help you uh see the place and uh get a feeling of this place is yeah, that right yeah. yeah shaquille what stories about this trip uh did you share with your family and friends after you come back from the trip what impressed you the most on the personal level Okay, so I think what impressed me the most was the different multi-ethnic groups that they have there in um, Xinjiang, and the fact that they were they're all together and um, living peacefully. And I loved. I think we went to Pokaya Museum where we saw um, there was an area that was like a desert, and they were able to transform this desert into a green land where the the people and the army all came together to work and like create a paradise for the people there. I found that to be very inspiring. So you had time to discover not just the diversity of the culture in Xinjiang, but also the economic development and uh, efforts to transform the ecological system. But Eunice, uh, let me go to you because you are a student of music. Uh, you study music and dance. And it must have been a very interesting trip for you because Wega uh, music is uh, world famous and Wega people are very versatile. They love singing, they love dancing, and they, they love to use you know, um, dance to express their feeling uh, whenever they feel like it. So um, what kind of uh, takeaway did you get from the experience, uh, either the Wega music or the Wega instrument or the way they dance? So, yeah, that's uh, very interesting because in Xinjiang, there is people who are dancing and singing everywhere, like everywhere. And uh, I was more interested in uh, Uyghurs' uh, music, like uh, Sharmukamu. Like uh, this kind of music, I heard about it before, but uh, just in some articles and uh, in some lectures in our university. But uh, uh, when I went to Ulumutsi and we saw how this uh, music is performed, and uh, there was a professor there, he was explaining to us uh, in the same time uh, the meaning of this uh, music and the meaning of uh, the lyrics because we don't understand the Uyghur's language and uh, it was very, very interesting to see the performance uh, uh, just uh, in the real world. So uh, there is a dance, there is instrumental music, uh, there is singing. So it's very interesting and uh, I saw just different instruments. There is just a lot of uh, traditional instruments like dutar uh, and some percussion instruments uh, like um, the ruwap and uh, it's, it's very interesting to me and i asked some uh, questions uh, about these instruments about the transcription of this music uh, because it was uh, like uh, inherited orally like it's uh, oral tradition like mm -hmm. us in uh, our in north africa so uh, it's it was very interesting to see this music how it is performed in the real world. Mm -hmm. Oscar, what, what is your experience? What impressed you the most about uh, the trip? So when uh, we went to Tiashi district in Kashi and we saw a water solution industry, we know that uh, in the past Xinjiang has lack of healthy water, lack of, uh, lack of water. So when we've been there, the water, uh, the water solution industry has totally solved that water problem in Xinjiang. We have seen there that the local people are saying that now they have no lack of water and the water is very 
very healthy for them. So like uh, like China government brings a new life for Xinjiang people, new hope. Uh, Shaquille, what was uh, your biggest, I mean, you talked about economic development as well. Um, did you feel that uh, this was something that you didn't expect at all that, or that it was something that uh, um, you can learn and you, the, or, country, or people in other places can potentially um, draw experience from and uh, help with their development? Well, at first, it was definitely something I did not expect, um, but the the businesses, the company, and as well as the people, they truly, they surprised me a lot. And I find, I feel that it's something that other countries can truly learn from. It, they really put a lot of effort and it wasn't just one person, it was everyone working together to try and make a better livelihood for the people of Xinjiang. So I think it's something I, I could definitely relate to my country needs as well. Hmm. Um, in general, in general, in terms of uh, stability or, or people's feeling, walking on the streets, going anywhere, I wonder, Eunice, for instance, how did you feel? Did you feel safe? Did you feel that you can go anywhere, talk to people on the street, and uh, there was a general sense of uh, ease or still a certain nervousness or tenseness in the air? What was your experience there? Okay, good. So we didn't have any issue of uh, security or uh, something like that. So we were uh, walking in the streets uh, freely and uh, we, we were talking to people uh, freely. And I remember uh, th there was one, uh, one woman, she went and said to me, she, she was talking to me in Uyghur language and I, I don't understand Uyghur language. Some professor came and he translated to me what she said she mm -hmm. said that you're you're the same as my uh, as my son you look like my son so <laughs> and uh, i just uh, felt very very good in uh, xijiang even if it was very very quick so because we visited a lot of uh, cities and a lot of uh, places so we were uh, very quick in our uh, trip but uh, we saw people we saw different people we saw uh, han people we saw uyghurs are living all together and uh, we learned more about uh, the history of Xinjiang and the multi, uh, multicultural uh, aspects, multi-religions and uh, multi-ethnic groups in the, this area. And uh, this is uh, really positive to me uh, to see uh, these different uh, ethnic groups are uh, living uh, all together. Very interesting to me. Yeah, I'm sure you have heard, you know, a, a lot of accusations made against Xinjiang, horrible things being said about how the people were treated there or how the people were treated there as employees, you know, that they are forced to work and so on and so forth, or that the, their culture is being, you know, cleansed and stuff like that. So having been there, I understand it was a very short trip. You only get to scratch the surface to say, to say the, the most, but uh, did you have a better understanding? Did it help clear some of the uncertainty or some of the questions you may have had before you go there, Eunice? Well, I heard a lot of uh, negative stuff about uh, Xinjiang before, but um, after being there, I just discovered that uh, there is no like cultural or religious uh, kind of issues. Maybe there is like some security uh, security issues, but this is uh, like national security issues. It's not uh, kind of religious or cultural problem because we saw, we saw that uh, they are like they are 
telling people all their history, like not not just uh, kind of religion or something like that. Deeper Xinjiang's history and uh, all the different group ethnic that survived there or different uh, culture uh, cultures or religions. So I didn't saw any problem. Uh, with that. Basically, when you mean uh, security, you mean ex extra strict measures um, in terms of keeping any possible uh, incidents from happening. So a lot of security to make sure that things are fine, to make sure that everybody is safe. Is that what you mean? Uh, yes, yes, uh, because we heard a lot of stories about uh, Xinjiang, some dark uh, years of uh, Xinjiang. Mm. And uh, right now, what uh, the measures are taken to fight against all these uh, events mm -hmm. or uh, all uh, aggressions. Uh, so it's going to be so hard, and uh, not just uh, for the for the government, but for the people, it's going to be a little bit hard too. So, but uh, I think, uh, but I I feel more uh, positive uh, about that. Um, so, Oscar, if I were to ask you to sum up your trip in a nutshell, two three sentences, how would you describe it? Actually, two or three sentences is too short to describe my experience and the feelings. But I will, I will say that uh, Xinjiang is really a beautiful place. And the culture, the, the diversity of culture, the multi-ethnic culture, it's really amazed, amazed me a lot. And actually, in the past, and when, we, uh, when we, I am not in Xinjiang, so I have learned, uh, I have heard a lot of things about Xinjiang, mm -hmm. but when I have been there, it's totally makes me right now. I feel safe in Xinjiang and and we all when actually seven days is very short for us. And when we are coming back, we was very sad. <laughs> I know. Because because, yeah. because we 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 are feeling love Xinjiang actually. I think that's a that's a feeling that's shared by many people. I had certainly the same feeling. I didn't want to leave. But uh, Shaquille, what was your experience in a you know in a few sentences? I found Xinjiang to be truly a beautiful place. You know the mixture of the multi ethnic groups, um, the people living together in harmony, everyone working together for a better future. Um, I feel it's a place I would definitely hope to visit again and I'm so thankful that I got the opportunity to actually witness it in real time, you know, so I think that's, that's about it. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much, Oscar, Shaquille and Eunice, and I hope that more people are able to go to Xinjiang and see for themselves this beautiful place. With that, we come to the end of this edition of The Point with me, Lu Xin. You've got the point.